Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. In 1960, lyricist and librettist Alan J. Lerner and composer Frederick Lowe brought us a slice of the King Arthur legend in their towering musical, Camelot. In the original Broadway production, halfway through act one, Julie Andrews unleashed Queen Guinevere sings, it's mad, it's gay, a libelous display, those dreary vows that everyone takes, everyone breaks, everyone makes divine mistakes. The lusty month of May. My high school chorus mounted a production of Camelot and I remember the head of the music department, Mrs. Dorothy D. Domenico of Blessed Memory, instructing the singers, if you're going to make a mistake, make it a good one. By this, she meant for us not to hesitate on our entrances, even if we had no idea whether or not it was really time to come in, let alone what note we should be singing. Mrs. D hated half-heartedness. If you're going to make a mistake, make a joyful noise, make it divine. My mind goes to another high school musical moment. We were singing Handel's Messiah, and somehow we were actually making a record, uh, which is a thin, round, black vinyl object with a little hole in the middle, played on something called a phonograph. Our orchestra was dubiously blessed with a plethora of trumpet players, and because it was high school, each of them was given a solo. There are a lot of trumpet solos in the Hallelujah Chorus. One solo was assigned to a really great musician named Arthur. In rehearsals, Arthur played his solo like a pro. But on the evening of the big concert, something happened. I have no idea what, but suddenly the sound coming from the orchestra pit resembled, we were in farm country, I'll say resembled a cow in distress, perhaps in the final throes of giving birth. <laughs> to our great credit, we all carried on. The audience didn't laugh or cry, but poor Arthur, in what should have been his shining moment in front of our families and friends, he came undone. And poor Mrs. D. Somehow the technology was not available to her to edit the final recording and the vinyl was pressed with Arthur's boo-boo for everyone to hear for all eternity. Arthur could have abandoned the trumpet right then and there. He could have decided that he'd never listen to Handel's great oratorio again. But some mistakes are just mistakes. There's nothing instructive about them. Our job is not to make it worse. 
to clean it up as best we can and to move on. Arthur was admitted to Ohio State University and played in their marching band, which is a very big deal, and went on to a long, successful career as a professional musician. Maybe one more thing. Maybe he also found some compassion, not just for himself, but for the musicians with whom he worked over the years. That would make his mistake a divine mistake. Life is always messy and filled with boo-boos. The saddest outcome of any failure is to close our hearts, to harden our hearts and shut down, living with regret and all its attendant remorse and drama. The best outcome of any failure is to keep our hearts open and keep the faith that there's a way forward to call down the spirits of our ancestors, our teachers, the prophets, the gods, if you will, and carry on. Using our mistakes as a change point, as a launch pad for change, is about engaging genuine respect for our human fallibility and curiosity. And using the momentum of appreciative inquiry to seek the possibilities of growth and grace. The Bible is filled with stories of one mistake after another. The first one that comes to mind is Judas's betrayal of Jesus. He was afraid, he got greedy, and he made a very big mistake not just in front of his closest friends, but tumbling down through the millennia. We all know what he did. Judas could not see a way forward and took his own life. Never a good solution. And hardly divine. What if the story had ended differently with Judas's awakening to his flawed thinking and behavior? What if he had repented and determined to proclaim the message of his beloved teacher? What if there were something more nuanced and instructive about what it means to try to right a wrong? A mistake becomes a divine mistake when we make it so. When we bless and release and if there's anything instructive to be found in it, to hunt it down. One of my earliest mistakes was not to send a timely thank you to my paternal grandmother, Nellie, for a combined birthday and Christmas present. She was poor, and I was just one among a slew of grands, but she had somehow saved up to buy me a silver chain with a single tiny pearl on it. It was actually a necklace you were meant to add to, maybe one pearl for each special occasion until you had a whole string. I like to imagine she'd gotten the introductory price and they'd failed to lure her in. 
But being more boy than girl, I had no use for a pearl necklace. What I really wanted was a jackknife. Nevertheless, I sat down at the kitchen table and wrote a draft of a thank you letter and then put it away thinking I'd wear the necklace to church and tell her about it. But also demotivated by my lack of enthusiasm for her gift. That draft was still in the trap drawer of my bureau when my auntie called to say that Nellie had died. I was too young to understand that when you're dead, you don't care whether or not your grandchild sent you a thank you. I felt terrible. And I left that draft in my drawer where I would have to see it. And I did see it every single day for many years, filling me with remorse, but also reminding me to make my mistake a divine mistake. Remember to say thank you. Guilt, remorse, shame, self-hatred, they all get in the way of learning from our mistakes. We freeze and all the chances for growth are over. The alternative is what Dr. John Kabat-Zinn means by what he calls full catastrophe living. Facing all of it, big messes and little, all our imperfections and shortcomings and failures, facing it and wading through it to some more productive, happier ending. On a whim, I googled biggest mistakes in history, and I got 320 million responses. Want to take a guess? Here are just a few. Russia's 1867 sale of Alaska to the United States consistently makes the top 10. All those natural resources and strategic positioning right next to the US. Then there is the tragic 1912 sinking of the Titanic, which started with the fact, did you know this? There were no binoculars on the bridge or in the crow's nest. No one ever saw the iceberg until the mighty ship was on top of it. British record label Decca was looking to sign an up and coming band. On New Year's Eve of 1961, they auditioned two and decided to sign Brian Poole and the Tremolos. Coming in second place was a four-piece kit from Liverpool known as the Beatles. <laughs> then there's Nassau's 1998 loss of a $125 million Mars climate orbiter. The Lockheed Martin spacecraft builders used English or US customary units of measurement while NASA's engineering team used the metric season for their software, the orbiter is still out there somewhere while the two software programs have yet to speak to one another. In 1989, Captain Joe Hazelwood crashed the Exxon Valdez into Prince William Sound, spilling some 760,000 barrels of oil into the waters of the Alaskan coastline 
The cost in cleanup and repairs was $4.4 billion. Adjusted for inflation in today's dollars, that's nearly $10,202,000. And in the late 1990s, 12 publishing companies rejected J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter before Bloomsbury finally took a chance on her based on the advice of the company chairman's eight-year-old daughter, making Rowling richer than the Queen of England. How to transform mistakes into divine mistakes. The Noble Eightfold Path consists of eight Buddhist practices leading to awakening and liberation. They are right view, right resolve, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. Sometimes these are just summarized as right action. Every good Buddhist teacher will tell you it's impossible to adhere perfectly to the path. We're constantly wandering off, suddenly stopping, looking around, and realizing we're lost, a little lost, or a lot lost. And if we're lucky, making our way back onto the path and onward. Right action is both about not doing stuff we shouldn't and doing stuff we should. It's also about cleaning up when we make a mess. Specifically, we are directed to take every opportunity to alleviate pain. My friend, Buddhist teacher Sylvia Borstein writes, right action is a permanent call if action is required and wholesome action can be taken. It needs to be taken. She describes being on a flight with a mother who is exasperated with her young son, absolutely fed up. She can't say a kind word to him, can't give him a break. And Sylvia sits in her seat, feeling all the feelings and frozen. When they all deplane and the mother and child disappear into the crowd, Sylvia is filled with remorse. Perhaps she writes, because my flood of judgments ended, I knew what I could have done. I could have stopped at her seat, smiled and said, it's very hard traveling alone with a child, isn't it? I did it too, long ago, and I remember. In doing this, she says she could have let the mother know that she had noticed her distress and cared enough to ask. It might have helped, but she didn't, and the mistake haunted her. She determined to make it a divine mistake, pointing her to the next time she might make a different choice. And sure enough, five years later, Sylvia was once again seated on a plane on the same flight, in fact, United Flight 33, Boston to San Francisco. She was weeks away from a publishing deadline and was eager to steal an untroubled six-ish hours of writing time from her busy schedule. The woman seated next to her, however, was eager to talk. She had bruised her coccyx in a recent fall and sitting was, patient for her, was painful for her. Also, she was a smoker. Without the distraction of smoking, talking would be the next best thing. 
Sylvia talked with her for a few minutes, then shuffled her papers in a way that she hoped suggested it was time for her to get down to work. But each time they concluded a topic, her seatmate thought of something else to share. Her back hurt, and she missed smoking. Lunch came and went. The mealtime conversation spilled into the afternoon. Sylvia's writing remained untouched. The subject of their respective jobs came up, and the woman asked a long string of questions about meditation. Was what Sylvia taught good for stress and anxiety, she wondered. Was it hard? How could she learn it? And Sylvia wrote down a long list of the names of books the woman could read and meditation centers where she might study. And then, in a gesture of final surrender, Sylvia asked her, would you like me to teach you to meditate right now? It might make you feel better. The woman was thrilled. Yes, she would. She really would. Sylvia gave her some instructions. The woman sat quietly for the first time in hours. And then they talked about her experience. She said she was more relaxed, noticing how the mind can make pain bigger than it really is. That feeling even a little better could make you feel a lot better. And that now she was sure she would make it through the rest of the flight. Suddenly, it occurred to Sylvia that it was ludicrous to be writing a book about relating with compassion at every chance we get and the joys of selfless acts of kindness while trying to ignore a person who was in pain and seated right next to her. The meditation had made the woman sleepy. Sylvia finishes the story. During the final half hour of the flight, she fell asleep, and I wrote something really good. This is a great example of a do-over. The power of our mistakes, in Sylvia Borstein's case, not speaking up, to propel us to better choices and transformational change in our lives. One more story. In October of 2005, toward the end of the final meeting of the Alcoholics Anonymous Roundup in Provincetown, the gratitude meeting, a woman raised her hand. Three years ago, she said her girlfriend was killed by a drunk driver. For three years, she had lived day in and day out with the rage and hatred and grief of that senseless tragedy. But over the weekend, she continued, the tiniest bit of light has pierced the darkness. Surrounded by sober people, all of whom had said and done things of which they were deeply ashamed, all of whom who were trying to remake their lives, she had begun to find it in herself to forgive the driver and imagine something other than this hell. And then she finished. I was the driver. A 
all these years later, this woman has continued to tell her story at AA meetings, as well as high schools around the country, praying it gets through to someone who might think better of getting behind the wheel. She has done everything in her power to support others in recovering, taking calls at all hours of the day and night. The dull ache and sometimes sharp pain of having taken another life will never leave her. But every day, she puts herself in service to saving lives, including her own. Beloved spiritual companions, this is full catastrophe living. Facing all of it, big messes and little, all our imperfections and shortcomings and failures, facing it and wading through it to some more productive, happier ending. May the power of our mistakes propel us to better choices and transformational change. A mistake becomes a divine mistake when we make it so. Let's make it a good mistake. Let's make it divine. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. Adapted from the words of Mahatma Gandhi. We know the path. It is straight and narrow. It is like the edge of a sword. We rejoice to walk on it when we slip we weep. Though from our weakness we fail a thousand times, we will not lose faith. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen.
please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.